What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its opera ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com. Coming up next on Wheel Bearings episode 210, we've got the Volvo XC90 T8 Recharge, the Porsche Macan, the BMW 430i, electric resto mods, and we have a special guest, Mr. Jamie Kitman, to talk about Elon Musk and his car collection. That's all coming up next. Did you know you can support Wheel Bearings directly? Head to patreon.com slash wheelbearingsmedia and you can become a patron today. Your contributions will help fund the platforms and tools we use to bring the podcast to you. And exclusives and improvements are already on the way thanks to your generosity. So if you want to be part of an automotive podcast like no other, head to patreon.com slash wheelbearingsmedia. <laughs> this is episode 210 of Wheel Bearings. I'm Sam Abul Sandwich from Guidehouse Insights. I am Nicole Wakeland from True Car. And I'm Roberto Baldo, and we'll say Motor One this week. And we have a special guest joining us this week, Mr. Jamie Kitman. Jamie, thank you so much for uh, stopping by this week and, and chatting with us. I really appreciate it. Oh, pleasure. Uh, so, <laughs> no, I'm sure it will be. <laughs> They're always interesting to listen to and to read. You're You've uh, you've got such an incredible way with words, um, and what what prompted me um, to uh, reach out to you is I saw <clears throat> actually I heard uh, your interview on Marketplace yesterday uh, about the article that was just published in uh, the the Road Rat. Correct? Is that the right name of the publication? That's correct. Um, about Elon Musk, uh, and the title is Elon Musk doesn't care if you like him. Um, we're going to come back to that in a little bit, but before we do, let's start off with the garage and talk about what we're driving this week. Uh, Nicole, why don't you go first? Okay, I will go first. I had the perfect car to have for the end of summer because summer's pretty much over here in New England. It's going to snow any day now. So I had a 2021 <laughs> BMW 430i convertible, uh, which is super fun to drive. I thoroughly enjoyed this. And I want to say this, and I have to give it a, like a, a, a but. It was, it was beautiful. It's so pretty. But 
that grill people the two the the grill what has happened there i wanted to get behind the grill on the front of the bmw and i swear to god i'm like sitting there looking at it outside the window i'm like i can't i just can't even my kids my daughter actually said to me who was 17 it's not like she's a toddler and asks odd questions serious question mom does it look like that because it does something like she thought there was some like engineering (laughs) reason why it was so big i'm like no honey it it just looks like that. So the, the grill is hard to get behind, but with this, like she really thought it was like, there's got to be a reason why they would do that to the car. Um, but so other than that and taking some serious getting used to, to having that in front of your car, uh, it's, it's beautiful. I love the soft top. The new soft top is fantastic. It is so good. And I realized as I was driving down the highway, I briefly, we had some rain and I'm driving the highway and I'm driving by these big tractor trailers, which is normally the kind of thing when you're in a soft top, you almost have to stop conversation for a second because it gets very, very loud. I sort of forgot that I was in one. Like it's so quiet with that top up. You wouldn't even know that it was a convertible, uh, which is pretty impressive. And you can even feel it when you touch the top of it. You can if you push against it, you can feel that like the sort of insulation and padding there. It's significant. So it's very, very quiet. Very, very quiet. When you choose to, to leave the top up. Shh. Yeah, baby could sleep in there. Because um, a baby's about all that would fit in the back seats. The back seats are very small. Uh, it says that four people can sit total in the car. You can fit two. There is no way on God's green earth that my husband could have sat back there. Maybe they sit in the grill. Maybe that's what it's for. Is <laughs> there like a lever yeah, I missed you can mount that a makes some of, of that seats pop on the out? Grill? Yeah, and they just sit there all in, yeah, like on the front. Um, but the back seats, my do- my teenage daughters could sit back there, but it was a squeeze. So it's you know it's 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 a two seater really. It's a four seater in a pinch. Um, but yeah, you can you can just barely make it work for four. Uh, it does have a surprisingly roomy little trunk. They gained a, a little bit of extra space by the change to the um, to the convertible top this year. So I think it's like nine cubic feet, which isn't a ton of space, but it's a convertible. It's not like you're buying an SUV. That's that's decent. You can actually fit your groceries back there, and. Power comes well, you could also a, use the back seat for groceries. You could, you could, but the the um, you, could. It, you can't flip the seats up quickly. There's a latch on the back, like on that. It's easier for the pass the person riding the back to flip open to get them to just like poop, pop forward. But even then, it's not like whoosh, poof, it's forward. It's for like and I'm like okay but it's, this is but great. it's a convertible so the top you should be down top? anyway well, it, but it's also I live in New Hampshire so there's like three days a year you can do that so when it's raining and the top is up it's as you wait for it uh, so it was quicker to flip the truck and put them in the truck and just squish them in and watch the eggs uh, so let's see power comes from a 2 liter turbo 4 with 255 horsepower 295 pound feet of torque 8 speed transmission um, they're not like blow your mind numbers but it's moves like that it, it's a responsive car it's fun to drive it sounds has a nice little like oh i'm a sporty little bmw kind of burble going on there yeah oh i see this is when i wish we had video that showed out in the show rob roberto just did this little like dance thing when i said it was a sporty car um <laughs> <laughs> like we need to see this sometimes. Uh, so driving it is a lot of fun. I mean, it, it's a BMW. It kind of drives like a BMW, which means that, you know, it's, it's an engaging drive. It's sporty without being so harsh that it feels like it's going to rattle your teeth. Uh, so it's comfortable. It's like a sporty car that you can enjoy your time behind the wheel and not think I can do this for about half an hour. And then I will have had enough. Like you could go on a long cruise in this. Uh, and it has all the, the fun bells and whistles inside. It has a great big, um, I think the standard screen's eight inches, but I had the 10.25 inch screen. So it's a good bit bigger. Uh, 16 speaker Harman Kardon audio system that sounds fantastic. So 
like thumbs up. And it was, I mean, it's expensive. I don't know, is it crazy expensive? Maybe my standards for crazy expensive have slipped since I've been doing this. But um, <laughs> base is 53100 so definitely not, not cheap. Um, when you add on all of the many things they've added on, there's a there's a whole bunch of M Sport stuff on the one I had. So there's uh, like you get special brakes and blue calipers and a differential, and you get some you know it's like M Sport logo on the the door sills. So mine went from fifty three one all the way up to sixty seven two. So it took a little bit of a jump. That's that's not cr- that's not crazy though. I mean, you know, no, it's too it, bad. Right, like it's it's like yeah. sure, it's not the price of a Camry, but it's 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 is a sports car. It is a luxury car. It's a convertible. So I felt like if I had sixty seven thousand dollars and I was looking for a fun little sports car, this could fit the bill. So I was pleased, and it was in that brilliant blue. I don't what do they call it? It can't just be blue. Port Portimao. I'm saying that Portimao. Wrong. I'm gonna Portimao. Port- Portimao. Is that how you? Yeah. What yes. you said, Sam, it was that blue metallic <laughs> is the rest of it. I can say blue metallic. Uh, the color was beautiful. It was absolutely, absolutely beautiful, beautiful color. So, yeah, so that yeah. was hey, probably Jamie? the last gasp of summer that I get, too. Yes. Yeah. Hey, Jamie, I'm, I'm curious what you think of BMW's new design direction with the <clears throat> oversized uh, grill kidneys. <laughs> you know, um, I just had an M4 and an M3 and... Uh, I started out, you know, I mean, I'm generally disappointed if I had to give you a two-word answer. Uh, but um, I would say that, um, y- you know, I, I, you, you get increasingly uh, numb to it, immune. Uh, and, you know, may, maybe that'll look normal in a while. I mean, be, really for the last 20 years or more, since when B- BMW was a style leader, I mean, they, they sort of still are. Um, you know, even if people should have stopped following them in the n- middle 90s. Um, but um, it seems like um, uh, that you, you tend to get used to it. And I think there's just uh, a pressure to do something different that um, drives them. But um, I, don't, I don't really understand it. I'm sort of surprised for a company that seems in many ways conservative that they, they go with kind of like radically awful um things like that and they're sticking to it yeah not backing down <laughs> no no but At you least know not, I mean, not yet anyway i mean i i seem to recall hearing that you know the the bangle bustle that was on the seven series around the turn of the century and people were up in arms i mean i at the time i defended it on the grounds that you know everybody complains that everything looks the same and of course, everything was starting to look like a BMW as the Japanese and uh, started copying the um, BMW and pretty much everybody um, w- was making a car that looked sort of like a five series. Um, so here comes BMW and they, they sort of break the mold a little bit and then everybody's complaining. So I think, you know, in general, um, I don't look to my colleagues in the automotive press for really design direction the automobile industry and i don't think anybody really knows what they want until they see it in any case the i the anecdote was that the seven series i think that was the best selling one was that first angle butted one and um and it it it, you know uh, migrated to lexus and others who did more or less the same thing so um 
personally don't care for it, but you know, generally like whatever, I guess is my view. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, I, I could probably live with it on the internal Uh-oh. combustion cars. Did we lose oh, Sam? Sorry. Oh, oh, there we are. Sorry. I <laughs> muted myself for a minute because Daisy was barking. <clears throat> um, I could, I could live with it. I think on the internal combustion cars, I don't like it, but I could live with it there where I think it really really annoys me the most though is on the new evs on the i4 and the ix and particularly on the ix where it is just it has grown so far out of proportion and it's not even at all functional there is no opening at all uh there's a, a small grill opening at the at the bottom you know so the entire kidney is kidneys are blocked off so it, it just i i just i don't understand the design direction at all <laughs> with BMW right now, but, uh, yeah, uh, let me, let me put this out for a vote. Um, what, which would, which would annoy you less the civic type R wing or the, mm. the, the, the giant size kidneys? Mm. The wing annoys me less because that is what you would anticipate on that car for that type of buyer. I think I'm going to agree because it, it works on that. They're not sticking it on the back of an Accord. You know, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it works on the car it's on. They're sticking that grill on everything. <laughs> right. And then, right. then the final point is, is that the grill is kind of like the first thing you see, you know. It's like somebody who's got really bad teeth or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it doesn't really matter what their backside looks like because you're so freaked out by that point. Yeah. Mm. So as soon as they smile, and it's like you don't know They're what to really, do. Right. Okay. All right. Roberto, what have you been driving? What have I been driving? Hold on. I got to double check. Oh, I drove the uh, 2022 Porsche Macan S, the latest version of the Porsche, probably the last update before the uh, lineup um, also includes an EV. So I drove the Porsche. I actually drove the Porsche Macan and the Macan S. I drove the base level and the the S version. And I'm just going to say the base, just the regular Macan, if you are just a person who wants a car that handles well and you're not uh, an enthusiast, you're not someone who wants to push a car, the regular Macan is fine. It's fine. But <laughs> to really get that Porsche, you know, that, the, that, that promise of a Porsche where you have that wonderful handling, but you also have the power that, that you know, that, that, is, that goes hand in hand with that handling, you got to get the Macan S. And that's that's where it, where it really comes down to, is you got you gotta get the Macan S. Um, I know that the uh, the price differential is is uh, pretty. Uh, there's just a ten thousand. It's about yeah. It's about ten thousand. Ten and a half thousand. So the Macan S starts at sixty five thousand four hundred dollars. It isn't that a cheap SUV? Um, the regular Macan starts at fifty four thousand nine hundred dollars. It is the least expensive uh, Porsche you can buy. But uh, is when it you're really? driving, that's that's the cheapest Porsche you can buy is fifty four thousand dollars. Yeah, uh, huh. I think the Cayman starts at sixty, low sixties, maybe mid sixties. I don't think I'd ever looked that up before. I, I had them all priced higher in my head. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so if you're you know if you're looking for a Porsche, but you you know you you don't want to spend a lot of money, you want to have room for maybe some kids or some friends, or you need storage. 
uh, yeah, that's that's where the Macan comes in, and people are I'm sure people are still angry about it. It's been out since 2014. It's not a real Porsche because it's an ex, it, it's it's an SUV. It's not a real Porsche because it's not air cooled. It's not a real Porsche because blah 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 blah. <laughs> all the reasons why Porsches aren't you know modern Porsches aren't real Porsches. All the reasons why SUVs aren't real Porsches. All the reasons why EVs are not real Porsches. When it comes down to when you drive these things, they still feel like a Porsche. They're still the you know you, you how much why does this cost so much drive a Porsche then you'll know that's that's really what it comes down to um yeah I really really liked it um I'm always surprised by how well Porsche is able to engineer um handling on an SUV the Macan and the, the Cayenne are both just ridiculously well handling SUVs or they're well handling sedans if they were sedans they would handle really well um you know the uh, the S has that 2.9 liter twin turbo V6 that was in the last generation I guess the current vehicles uh, GTS, so you're getting a, a nice little uh, bump in power, a nice little bump in, um, in both horsepower and torque. It's got that seven-speed PDK, which um, God, the PDK is so good. It's 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 one of my favorite uh, trans automatic transmissions out there. If you have to have an automatic transmission, I guess the PDK is the one to have. Um, coming in and out of corners, it downshifted when it was supposed to. Uh, it upshifted when it was supposed to. Everything everything that you would do with a manual transmission, the PDK, about 80, 85% of the time, it takes care of. So that's all that, you know, praise for back roads uh, driving. Um, 0 to 63.4 seconds. Um, here's a fun thing, though. Uh, so it starts, the, the again, I, the one I was driving started at, hold on, let me double check, uh, $65,400. Um, the price tested, that was a lot more. <laughs> So, uh, and this is one hundred and three thousand. Oh my god! Six hundred dollars. And oh. so now, okay, so I'm gonna put the sport chrono package. Okay, yeah, all right. Well, then I'm gonna put the the uh, the 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 brake. I'm like, okay, well, you probably don't need those super brakes, but okay. And then you know, they just keep adding and adding and adding and adding. That's sort of the Porsche ways that people buy a car, and wow. then it just it just skyrockets because you just keep adding the. <laughs> All these, ins- these things. That's it crazy. is, it is insane how much it's. It's forty thousand dollars more. It's a whole other car. It's a whole other car. Yeah. It's a whole other car. You so, can trick out your Porsche, or you can just buy another car. Or you could just buy another car. Buy like a backup car. <laughs> like a second car. You just put just it in, in the case. back. Yeah. Or and, really. And that's not even the GTS. You know, the, G- no, the, GTS, the GTS takes you up. Yeah, the the starting price of the GTS is another fifteen thousand. On top of that, uh, I think uh, yeah, it's like seven. Yeah, you go from sixty five thousand four hundred to seventy nine nine to go from an S to a GTS, which gets you um, an extra uh, an extra uh, uh, fifty five horsepower, which is you know it's not bad, but it's only three tenths of a second zero to sixty. Yeah, it's <laughs> a lot. That's a that's a that's a lot of money for each tenth of a second. <laughs> it is. It's a lot of money for each tenth of a second. Um, Time there, is money, so there, there is. Yeah, there, there is a discernible difference um, in acceleration between the Macan and the Macan S. But then once you start getting to the GTS, and then you're just like, wow, that's so much money. And at that point, you're like, well, why are you buying? I, 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 I'm still a little confused by the super high speed uh, performance edition SUVs as a human. As just a regular person, not as an automotive journalist, because I'm like, well, just get a sports car. But that's that's a whole other issue in the world. Uh, people don't, you know, people want SUVs. People are going to buy these. Why not make them? 
if you're if, if if I make it and I offer it, people will buy it, and that's people. that's yeah. Yeah. Folks will buy the car. So yeah, no, I, I am a fan of G, uh, the Macan S. Um, I probably wouldn't outfit it with twenty with forty thousand dollars worth of uh, <laughs> worth, of, <laughs> worth of options. Um, no. Yeah, probably not. Probably uh, let me think of the two car. Okay, uh, every vehicle I own doesn't equal forty thousand dollars, <laughs> <laughs> which just goes to show how cheap I am. So there's that as well. Um, yeah, and uh, uh, there was no. I I didn't get any EPA numbers because there are no EPA numbers yet. And I was driving German spec vehicle, so navigation and all that was sort of. It had no idea where it was at. Like, I think I'm in America. I don't know. <laughs> where are we gone? What's happening? Yeah. Which is always fun when you drive German and, and, and uh, or European or Asian spec vehicles where the cars is like, ah, you, don't, you don't really realize that, A, the radio doesn't work and the, the navigation is really confused. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get here? <laughs> <laughs> Jamie, you got it? do you have any thoughts on the Macan? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I liked it when I drove it uh, by coincidence. I just, um, had been driving a, uh, 718 Spider Porsche, which also, uh, suspiciously cost $103,800 with, with options. Um, and it was great. Um, and you know, uh, call me a purist, but I'll take a Boxster, a Cayman or a 911 over uh, any SUV any day unless you know i need to carry more people um but um in general i you know i would i would die on that rock about why it's stupid to put um you know 600 horsepower into an suv um and encourage people to go around corners faster and then or accelerate faster but uh, while we're on the subject i also kind of feel like it's it's you know it it reached the point of no return of you know ten years ago where cars were simply getting too fast and every every extra fifty horsepower meant you had to have more electronic controls so people didn't kill themselves and you had to kill the torque um, that was going to the wheels and correct for all the errors people were going to make because they had cars that were too powerful but it's really reached the point and I think electric cars have just taken it completely over the edge and there's a part of me that thinks well i guess if if you're you know appealing to people's reptilian brain you know well faster is better because because it is um so maybe that helps sell in electric cars which broadly i think are you know probably a good idea but um they're just too fast i mean i had a a, just a regular tycon 4s not long ago and it was so fast that I really thought I was going to black out. And it was, you know, there were two even faster ones available um, that you could buy from Porsche for a lot more money. But I, I seriously was like, I don't know how people could do this. And the old guys who are probably driving them, they will black out. I mean, it was like it was akin to being strapped to the, you know, like the front landing gear of an F-18 taking off. It was just like, you know, everything blurs and you get lightheaded and, you know, you hope you don't run into the back of something when that's happening. So I, I you know, uh, I had kind of um, more fun, you know, I guess I subscribe to the old adage of I have more fun driving a slow car fast than a fast car slowly. So um, after they came and took the Porsche away today, 
and left left me a Mitsubishi Outlander, which um, rare to get at. Um, I instead drove a 1968 Lancia Fulvia Berlina, which was um, <laughs> more my speed because you know you're you're really working it out to you know get up to highway speeds. But it's it's great, you know. It's just it's just a gem. I I totally agree with you on that. That's you know that's why I drive a 1990 Miata. You know very very much in that same vein of <laughs> slow car fast. Uh, so yeah, I think you think you're you're absolutely right about uh, you know I you, when I was in my younger days you know I used to think that you can never have too much torque, and then I started driving some of these modern EVs, and it's like yeah. Yeah, you can have too much torque. You know, it's, it's when, when you can't actually it use it. Like. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and now we're getting stuff like the Model S Plaid, and maybe someday even the the, the next generation Tesla Roadster, which you know, with he's Musk wants to put uh, SpaceX uh, thrusters on there, cold air thrusters, and shoot that right. thing to, to sixty in one second. You know, it's just it's ridiculous. It's an arms race, really, and that's, you know, yeah. I mean, the automobile industry has demonstrated for a long time that they, they love a good arms race, uh, whether it makes sense or not, whether it comes back to bite them in the ass or not, you know, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll ante up. Yeah, you know, during Stellantis's EV day a um, couple of months ago, they you know, they acknowledge that, you know, yeah, we've pretty much done, I think we've done all we re- reasonably can with internal combustion with the, the Hellcat engines. And so now we're going to go electric so we can go even faster. You know, it's, it's, it's just nuts. I, yeah, uh, I understand and, the impulse. And I think that's okay if that was part of their portfolio. But the way they've been talking in the last couple of weeks, it really sounds like that's all they're planning to do. Um, and the idea of like sensible transportation. And I think that you know, I mean, I think the industry, you know, is has wrapped itself around, especially at Stellantis, the American companies have wrapped their heads around, um, you know, the transition to electric power in, in a super hurry. Um, and this is sort of the way that Dodge seems to have gotten there. But but you, you got to, you know, wonder if they realize that, you know, making cars that go that fast, driving that fast, making cars that are so heavy because you need so many batteries because they go so fast that you use the power too quickly otherwise and you have an unacceptable range. I mean, there's still, I would have thought, you know, no matter how clean your power is and we're nowhere close to having a clean electrical grid, that the idea of have, driving around 9,000 pound cars like the new Hummer, the 9,500, that goes zero to 60 in 2.4 seconds or whatever. I mean, that's, you know, that's, it may not be quite the same affront to the environment as a, you know, as a big block that was in its day or, you know, something much heavier, but, but it's still, it, it can't be the way forward overall for, for the world. Yeah, totally agree. All right. Um, anything else on the Macan, Robbie? Uh, no, I think that is it. I, I, I also had a chance, I had a chance last year to drive that, uh, 718 Boxster. Uh, oh man, I love that car. It's my best friend. <laughs> I called it my best friend. That's what I, <laughs> <laughs> your new bestie BFF. This is my new best friend. Although it also reminds me what a great deal used Boxsters are. 
I mean, you can still get them. I've seen six thousand uh, dollar first gen Boxsters and eight thousand dollar, ten thousand dollar. But like, what a lot of performance and you know, um, pretty safe feeling car in a in a less bulky package. Not a terrible idea to spend some of that on the forty thousand dollars you don't spend opening up your McCann on a <laughs> no, Boxster and then taking thirty thousand dollars and going and have a good time. Don't don't say anything because you're gonna people are gonna start putting them on bring a trailer and that'll be the end of the uh, inexpect, inexpensive boxers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, we were we were actually just talking about that last week um, when uh, when we were in Napa. I was talking with Jason Fogelson. He's looking for some you know some kind of fun project car, and uh, the the conclusion that several of us came to is probably a, a first gen Boxster would be his best bet. You know, in terms of something reasonably affordable, uh, at least to purchase, if not necessarily to buy parts for. Uh, but uh, yeah. Um, yeah, that would that would probably be his best bet. So I think he's actually looking for one now. Um, all right did did you want to talk about this other vehicle you had listed here, Robbie? Um, I can talk about it in uh, quick, rather quickly because I've not had a chance to okay. take it off road, which is sort of the whole deal with this. I have the uh, the Bronco, the Ford Bronco. I finally I finally got behind the wheel of one, and uh, five minutes behind the wheel, I'm like, oh yeah, I get it. I understand. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> I get it. It's big and ridiculous and off-roady, and it's it's like the Wrangler and a and a and a Defender had a baby, and they just slapped some Ford uh, badges on it and called it a day. Um, yeah, I haven't had it again. I haven't had a chance to 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 take it off-road yet. It is the Badlands, which you know, that's essentially it's it's only job. Even though I'm pretty sure 85% of all the Badlands in the world will uh, spend uh, very, very, very little, if if probably no time, uh, actually going off-road. Um, I, I, it was one of those vehicles where if people came over and they're like, you want to go drive from the, for- the Bronco? And they're like, yes, yes, we do. I have an XC40 right now, um, Recharge, the EV XC40. And they were a little less excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, that's You're odd. You're kidding. Yeah, That's yeah, so they were weird. they were kidding. So yeah, it is very uh, you know it's it's people across the street have asked me about it. Yeah, it's it's one of those 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 cars. People a lot of people have been asking about it. I understand, and it's it, but it's also you know it's 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 just ginormous. It's it is uh, it is a lot larger you than, the than you anticipated. Uh, I don't know. I got the two door. It's just tall. It's just it's, it just oh, wow. feels very yeah. yeah. It feels. It's 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 big and yellow and it's it's you know it's fun to drive, um, but it still feels a bit like a. I feel like I'm driving a school bus um, sometimes. Um, <laughs> so it's you know, but I, I'm gonna take it. I'm gonna uh, this time this sometime this week before I, I head off to Germany, I will take it off road, and I'm sure I will thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, my wife likes it, uh, but it is also uh, it is not a plug-in hybrid or an EV, so it's sort of off the table for us as we're. Uh, c- currently looking for a, a new something car. Uh, have you driven so the Bronco, Jamie? Uh, no, I haven't. I'm offended, uh, but uh, oh. they haven't offered one up yet here to me in New York. Um, I have driven the Bronco Sport, which was okay, but has obviously <laughs> nothing to do with the okay. uh, regular Bronco. But um, <laughs> Um, I heard a lot of people saying nasty things about it, like you know, my friends in the press. But I, um, I thought it was it was fine. Uh, about the Bronco Sport, people yeah. are being nasty. Yeah, yeah. 
But I thought it was fine. It's it's not the same car as the Bronco. The, yeah. It's not intended to be that hardcore off-roady yeah. kind of car. So if that's what you're expecting, of course they're disappointed. But for what it's supposed to be, I thought it was great. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, as has probably occurred to you all, there's, you know, there's a living to be made by being perpetually grumpy. So This is true. <laughs> It's okay. it, it, all those people uh, would have bought an Escape, and when I when I mine. when I drove it, yeah, they yeah. would bought an Escape, yeah. which is not a great. It's uh, the Bronco yeah. Sports so much better than the Escape. Mm-hmm. It has some, yeah. it has I, a little I, bit. Of, I think that's yeah. right. It look it looks better, even if it's the same car. It looks it looks to me it looks better, and mm-hmm. you know, you know, if it helps people live that dream, you know, without having to buy a real Bronco, <laughs> why not? Yeah. I mean, the real Broncos fuel economy numbers are a little bit startling in the year 2021. They are pretty yeah. bad. They're, they're really bad uh, for how <laughs> how you know, it's a four-cylinder engine that's getting 20 miles per gallon or something like that on a good day. That's pretty bad. With a tailwind. Yeah. <laughs> Downhill. Yeah. yeah. You know, high range. But, you know, I mean, it, it does have the aerodynamics of a, of a barn, so... <laughs> You know, I said it's kind of like a toaster, just like a little toaster. Oh, it is like a little, toaster. little square. Happy little toaster. Happy little toaster. <laughs> All right. Speaking of plug-in hybrids, uh, I had one in the uh, in the driveway since I returned from uh, our little sojourn in California last week. Um, the Volvo XC90 T8 Recharge Inscription. Um, so this is the the top end of the top end of the Volvo lineup. Um, the XC nineties, they're, they're semi-large, um, three row SUV. Um, you know, the, the third row is on the tight side, you know, for, for three roads, it's, it's adequate, but not, not exceptional. Um, I've driven this thing several times over the last several years in various guises, the T6, the T8. Um, I don't, know if i've ever had a t5 uh so the t8 is the plug-in hybrid uh where you've got the the two liter four cylinder up front with a turbocharger and a supercharger for about 315 horsepower and then um another 100 horsepower electric motor on the rear axle uh and a battery that um according to the epa gets you about 18 miles of electric driving range i actually last time i had one i managed to actually get it up to 21 miles before the engine kicked on um you know 100 horsepower from the electric motor is not a lot but it you know it's actually adequate for you know cruising around town and you know as long as you don't accelerate away from stoplights too quickly um but even if you're if you're in if you've got it in hybrid mode you know, the engine will come on for a bit and then it'll shut off uh, once you ease off the accelerator. The the inscription, you know, the the the, the XC ninety, you know, has a really lovely interior. You know, great materials, nice leather, nice nice wood. Um, I still on on the plug in hybrids, they have a different transmission shifter than they do on the gas engine models. The gas engine models for now still have you know traditional mechanical transmission shifter the the plug-in hybrids have um an electronic um switch for a shifter and it's got this lovely looking crystal um shift knobs w little shift knob but the thing that has annoyed me ever since the first time i drove one of these about three years ago is when you go to put it from either from park into either reverse or into drive you actually have to push it twice 
you if you do it just once, you'll end up in neutral, and then the, you take your foot off the brake, and the car starts rolling. And so you you have to remember to always hit it twice when you're going from park to either neutral or drive or reverse. Um, and dual I clutch. don't understand it's why a dual they clutch. did that. No, it's it's a uh, not dual. <laughs> oh, clutch. that's it. You have to you're, so you're double clutching, except without you a clutch. Double button. clutch it. You got to double clutch it. That's how. <laughs> not dual no. clutch. Double clutch. Um, the uh, uh, <laughs> um, the the other thing that you know annoys me less than it used to, but still annoys me is the census infotainment system. So this doesn't yet have Volvo's new Android automotive based system in it. It's, it's the old one that it's got the nine inch screen and you can swipe between three different pages and, um, the, it kind of changes modes as you do, you know, if you swipe, uh, if you're, if you have it on the the media uh, section, you know, for whatever, if you're listening to the radio or listening to something on Android Auto or CarPlay, and then you swipe over and you go to get your uh, your vehicle information and then swipe back, then that disappears. And it, it's just kind of a pain to use. I, I don't really like it. Um, fortunately, it has got, they have improved the performance of it over the years. It used to be a lot more laggy and slow than it is now, but it's, it's, reasonably fast now but it's still not a good interface but that's going to be going away next year when the the replacement for this thing comes out which is going to be all electric there's there's going to be as far as i know no gas engine version of the replacement for the xc90 um and this one that i had uh what came out it has a uh let's see base price on the xc90 uh, t8 is 69,750 uh, with the options on this one, which included the uh, lounge package with the back uh, backrest Ooh. massage front seats, seventeen hundred bucks for that, um, and the advanced package with the heads-up display and the three hundred and sixty surround view camera, another fifteen hundred bucks, and the the Bowers and Wilkins premium sound system for thirty two hundred, and and a few other assorted options came to a grand total of eighty one thousand six hundred and ninety dollars um, delivered, um, and remarkably. Even though it has to come all the way from Sweden, they only charge nine hundred and ninety-five dollars for delivery. So, <laughs> it's a it's a bargain compared to uh, getting an F one hundred and fifty, which comes from about twenty miles away from me, and would charge you eighteen hundred dollars <laughs> for that one. Was it's it? Double, was it was it? Was two thousand. There was something that just had a two thousand dollar destination. I can't remember what it was. Uh, was it the Wagoneer? Sounds about. I right. think it was. Yeah, I think two the Wagoneer was up to two dollars. Yeah, two grand. <sighs> yeah. It came all the um, way from Sweden, and it's still for less than the Wagoneer yeah. comes from here. <laughs> yeah. What, what What do you think about current Volvos, Jamie? I like them. Um, I actually just spent uh, ten days with my youngest son um, going to on a baseball park tour um, of of you know sort of the area around New York. We went to um, Washington D.C., Philadelphia, Baltimore, Pittsburgh, and back in an XC40 recharge, and um, um, I really liked it uh, more than I thought I would. People, um, you know, were really enthusiastic about not just the car and talking about about it, um, but the color that they have. They have this new kind of sage green color that people were, like, stopping in traffic to ask about it. They were just like, I just, I love that color, and it made me think about you know, why there ought to be more pastel paints. But um, um, I think that they, you know, um, 
when there was a time not that long ago when when pundits were saying, I remember reading several people in a piece in Automotive News where people were saying, oh, you know, there's really no reason for Volvo to exist now that, you know, Audi is doing so great. And, you know, there's BMW, there's no place for them to go. And, you know, Ford can't figure it out. So they might as well just go away. And I, I felt that was, you know, dumb, you know, if there was, there was, if they could make a decent car that they, you know, to get their reputation as being a safe brand, which, you know, was founded in elements of reality. Um, but, um, you know, that would cost, you know, tens of billions of, of dollars, if not more, to create that for yourself out of whole cloth. So I thought, um, you know, everything that they've done since they were, you know, um, taken over by Gili, um has been in the way, the kind of sensitive way that Gili has allowed them to engineer their own cars and, you know, just do the things you would like to do um, if you could afford to do them uh, has been has been really good. And I think it's it, they've been rewarded with with strong sales in the States and their best ever. And um, I, I think they're um, completely credible. And I, I in general, I always feel like when there's an established brand that's done well, that, you know, that falls by the wayside completely or is allowed to die, that it's, uh, you know, somebody really screwed up because that's like, you know, there's, it's, it's so hard to get into the car business now. If you have a going concern that ever, you know, flirts with profitability, it's like, you know, I mean, come on, somebody, somebody ought to be able to figure this out. Yeah, no. uh, uh, it, it's a, it's a shame that you know some brands like Saab, you know, never quite did manage to figure that out. GM never, you know, well, they, GM, they couldn't figure it out on their own. And GM has like Donald Trump like properties of killing everything they touch. <laughs> um, and uh, I think that um, it was really unfortunate. They, you know, unlike Geely, I think they fundamentally misunderstood the brand, which is is. You know, I think Ford did a better job with Jaguar, you know, albeit, um, you know, they've, they've got a lot of work left to do now. Uh, but um, um, I think that, you know, GM didn't understand what made Saab Saab. And I mean, it was telling right away when they, they started laying off engineers and um, um, and using Opals as the basis for Saabs and then even lesser cars. Um and the telling thing was, is that um, I think the, um, what do they call them? The NCAPs, the European Crash Ratings. Mm -hmm. This first mm -hmm. GM yeah. built a Saab went from the equivalent of like a five to a two in the crash test. And that, you know, so that showed that they had really lost the plot right there. But then the layoffs and things like that. And of course, the ultimate um, insult was the 97X, the Chevy Trailblazer. Uh, oh, yeah. and all the money went into the badges and moving the ignition key to the floor which was you know as a one-time sob person that was you know probably the least important part of the sob being a sob but they they saved that and chucked the rest yeah julie's kind of done the opposite uh with with volvo they let them engineer their own stuff to do their own design. And then they've actually borrowed from that for some of the stuff that they're doing in China with, with Lincoln Co. and, and now Zeker and, and some of their other brands. Okay. So they're, 
they're leveraging the strengths of Volvo for the rest of their group instead of the, trying to force what they already had onto Volvo. Right. You, you hear a lot of people talk about leveraging, you know, those things and synergizing, but often that's exactly right. They, they do the worst thing, you know, they throw out the good and, and double down on the bad. So, um, um, it, you know, I mean, it, it gives me hope for uh, companies like Lotus and London Taxi and other properties, you know, iconic properties that they've acquired. All right. So. Let's dive into um, some conversation. The, the reason why we had you join us uh, this evening, uh, Jamie, which is, well, first of all, <laughs> because you're an incredibly interesting writer. I mean, I, I've been reading your stuff for many, many years in many different publications and well, always enjoyed the way, you, the way you put words together. And a great example of that is your latest article for uh, The Road Rat about Elon Musk. Um, why don't you, what, what prompted you to, to write this article? Well, basically, um, as I note in the article, I was a Musk agnostic. I mean, I, I, you know, he seemed like, you know, I mean, I don't expect much from, you know, um, entrepreneurs in the way of being nice guys. And, you know, I didn't really, he didn't seem like a very nice guy. Um, but, um, you know, it, what he had achieved was hugely impressive. Um, so, and, and the cars were great. I mean, I was, uh, you know, sort of vaguely troubled by the fact that, that the true believers were, were you know, um, seemed like they were unwilling to admit that there was any possibly, you know, less than perfect thing about Musk and, and Tesla cars. But uh, to answer your question in a word, um, they asked me to write a story about it. Um, and uh, so um, I, I, I immersed myself in everything I could read about Musk. Um, and, you know, I, I came away sort of where I started, which is that, you know, he's a, he's, he's a, um, you know, what I guess, uh, was it Hegel or Kant called a world historical person, the people who, you know, they're, they're just the right guy at the right time, and they're just destined to be um, famous, and in his case, rich. And I think, you know, he's, he's, he's a brilliant guy, but he's also, um, he's kind of a huckster. And I think um, that's sort of what the, the piece explores. I think that the, the surprising part to me is I, I had come around some years ago to going, like, you, you got to give this guy a lot of credit for moving the whole electric car game along, um, you know, and the Model S, for whatever problems it had, it came out of the, the box so well, you know, and it was such an impressive piece of engineering. Um, and he had, he had, he had really um, overcome the big hurdle um, with, with a bright idea about, like, what, you know, how you would sell an electric car to the public and how you would not lose your shirt doing it and how it didn't have to be, you know, a, a penalty box, um, you know, in the way that, you know, some economy cars were and that, you know, was a badge of honor for, you know, your environmentalist types, but really didn't interest people who were going to spend money on cars. So, um, um, but so I, you know, I, I credit him for that and, I, and there's no 
no question that the world is closer now to widespread adoption of electric cars than it was. And, uh, you know, a lot of that, or at least uh, some of it, has to do with him. So I applaud him for that. Uh, less uh, savory was the discovery, which, you know, I, I wasn't the first person to realize this, but, but as I paid more attention to it, it, it started to, you started to see a pattern where he was, um, you know, uh, very much in charge of his own narrative. And th there, were, there were elements to it which were, were, were false and which um, I guess overly stated his contribution to the technological side of the question, but also in the promises he made for his cars, the way he treated his workers and the way that he was seen as a pure, a force for pure good with respect to the environment which I, I don't think is as clear as some people think it is. And, you know, the very fact of his notoriety and the way he operates in the world, uh, wherein now he's been able to let go his press office and really doesn't, isn't held to account by the press uh, because he doesn't talk to them. And he has very much in the fashion of Donald Trump, an army of online, you know, um, supporters who will savage anybody who has anything critical to say about him, whether or not they're trading in facts or just the general bitterness of the automobile industry, which was, you know, there was a lot of acrimony towards Musk, which, you know, uh, some part of which I would say was sour grapes. But it's also true that he hasn't been treated by the public or the government in particular as a car maker, but and, and certainly the stock market but more as a tech company, which was, you know, tech companies were already pissing off Detroit and other car makers long before it, because here are these people who didn't make any money necessarily, who were being rewarded with massive um, stock valuations, which were reflected in their personal incomes. While these guys who were running heavy industries were, you know, doing, you know, tens of billions of dollars of business and earning often billions of dollars profits and their shares were flat, their paychecks were flat or down. I mean, you know, what a misery for them. So um, I think he caught a lot of guff from people who wanted to sit around and criticize him within the industry, but but actually um, should have probably been paying more attention and getting their ships out to see the great electric car sea sooner. Yeah, I think that you know that's that's an interesting point. Um, you know, obviously, you know, I think they they looked at Tesla and saw that they were certainly gaining some traction in the marketplace in terms of their sales growing. But until relatively recently, they had never had. You know, I mean, last year was the first time in their history that they had had an annual profit. And whether or not you actually believe that they were in, in fact profitable is is a whole other question that. Uh, the article doesn't get into, and there's a lot of questions about their accounting practices. But uh, you know, the 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 rest of the industry, you know, looked at it and said, "Yeah, they're selling stuff, but they're not making any money, you know, and and they're not selling that many compared to the whole industry. So let's just go keep doing what we're doing and and not really in, invest a whole lot in this, you know." Uh, you know, some companies, GM invested some with the Volt and then the Bolt, but it was still, you know, relatively minor compared to, and and they weren't they weren't doing things as uh, as out there 
as what Tesla was doing in terms of things like their electrical architecture and, and the charging networks and things like that to really try to build it up. Why do, why do you think that is? Oh, I mean, I think that, um, you know, they, they, that's been a problem in the industry for, you know, my entire life. You, you know, probably, I mean, if you were to look back, you know, in, back at least to the 1960s where, you know, senior management would was really, you know, they had a comfort zone. They know what had worked for them in the past, and that's what they try to do, and that's what they, they keep trying to do. But I think, um, you know, they... Um, you know, they they had a completely different hand they'd been dealt than 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 Musk was, and Musk was you know Musk is a genius in that he was able to game the system to his advantage. Um, one of the people I interview calls him you know like one of the great rent seekers of our time. Um, I looked that up in the dictionary, and it's it's basically somebody who you know uses and manipulates government policy to benefit themselves. Uh, financially, and that's really what what Tesla did. Um, so I think that uh, in general, um, you know, they they, you know, the the you know certainly General Motors being a good example, who could have owned the electric car space from the time of the EV one on, and then you know uh, had the bolt gone differently. I mean, even before they knew that they had a problem with their batteries. They were already backpedaling on that car. They didn't market it seriously at all. Um, I think that they've been burned by taking chances in their minds in the past. You know, going back to the days of the copper-cooled Chevrolet and the 1920s and the Corvair. You know, the few times they've really tried to do something different. You know, onto the four-wheel steering pickup trucks. Um, it didn't. It either. You know, was it prove some sort of embarrassment to them or, and, it, and it didn't make them money. And then, you know, you, 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 that dovetails with the growing and, uh, you know, unfortunate tying of everybody's compensation to share price um, and the absolute crazed, um, you know, short-sightedness of, of most American corporations and in the world's corporations, sadly, that, um, it made the you know the long game that te- that Tesla and Musk were playing very hard for them to to even think about replicating. They could never get away with it. You know, I mean, you look at I mean, there were a lot of problems with Saturn, but there was there was a lot of success around Saturn, which sadly had nothing to do with the cars. But um, they ran away from that too um, because it just wasn't it wasn't what they knew. There was politics internally. That you know, other things were being starved for Saturn's benefit. So I, you know, it's very hard to, um, you know, this is my observation. I'm not an MBA or a, uh, you know, a former industry executive, but it seems like it's very hard to uh, change an ingrained, large, highly political culture to do something you've never done before that you don't really understand, and that your shareholders are not going to give you a chance to. You know, the majority ones are not going to give you a chance to execute. So what's the point of having a five-year or 10-year plan that's really a 10-year plan if, if you're going to be fired in year two? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, Robbie, Nicole? Um, yeah, I've covered Elon and, and Tesla for, well, in, entirely too long, which is anything more than two days. Um, 
And yeah, there, there, there is a, you know, uh, when you talk to uh, employees, both former and current, there is a sort of underlying um, acknowledgement, but not, you know, they're not overtly, but acknowledgement of, well, Elon has this idea and we're just going to do it until he, we either A, he changes his mind or B, he forgets about it and we just go back to doing things the way it should be done. Um, for for a lot, and we and this is you know when you talk about things that have to do with the press department. I mean, there's no longer a press fleet. Um, if you know everyone who's reviewing Teslas are they're renting random uh, owners Teslas, which you know probably isn't ideal. Um, but you know they if you just rent the the Tesla on Turo and then you just take it to the track and you do a zero to sixty run, boom, you got a billion views. You don't have to do an actual review anymore. You just have to like make it go real fast. <laughs> And so it's. It, I think right now, it's. It's. I think the. You know. You talked about how they're playing a long game, but I think they're currently there's. There's a lot of short-sightedness going on at at Tesla because I think they've they've played the long game and they've won with the help of a lot of you know like you said EV credits. Um, but those you know of course Stellantis, uh, the FCA's, uh, major was a major con- uh, contributor to that, and those are go- those are going away or have already gone away. Um, and I think there's a they're in a weird space right now because. The vehicles they have out are out, and they still have this other, you know, this Cybertruck that keeps being delayed, which is, you know, just regular Tesla stuff. Stuff's going to be delayed. But but I think as in this sort of this 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 sort of lull of new Teslas, everyone else is finally bringing out EVs, and there's there is a hunger for people to get an EV that isn't a Tesla just because they've been turned off by Elon. Yeah, no, I think that's that's absolutely right, and I, I don't mean to, uh, uh, you know, to just go like, well, they figured it all out. It, they the long game. I think um, I wouldn't say that they've entirely run out of ideas, but I mean, it, it's a fascinating situation because Musk has so many other distractions. I mean, he everything he can think of, he he can raise the money to do. Mm-hmm. So I mean, SpaceX is you know is a phenomenal second career to have you know, on the boil while you have a first one running the world's largest electric car startup. Um, and um, I mean, I guess for the fortune of U.S., good to the good fortune of U.S. astronauts, they have other people who were, you know, more traditional, you know, uh, in their, their business style running that um, and their commitment to safety and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Tesla has a lot of problems that are a function of, of Musk's, um, you know, over-promising um, what he can do, what his cars can do, uh, his idiosyncratic management style, the lack of a, you know, a proper hierarchy and things like that. You know, I think those are both, like, they're double-edged swords. Like, mm-hmm. the great things about Tesla because uh, uh, in some large measure because of Musk and the unfortunate thing, but... One of the interesting things I found talking to former Tesla employees was the idea that um, he's burning out on the job, and he's he's they they read some of his more zany you know um, tweets and things like that as being evidence of him wanting to just get pushed out of it so he can just declare victory and go on to his his next thing. I mean, he mm-hmm. just he always has a new project, and if they don't stick, he just goes away. Here, you know, you have a situation where he's heavily invested. His whole fortune is is tied, or most of his fortune is tied to Tesla. 
at this moment, it makes him incredibly rich. That could change. I mean, if you read about like, you know, Billy Durant or uh, other, you know, of the great lunatics of the early days of, of the, you know, of the automobile, you know, they were great until they weren't great. And then, you know, Durant supposedly wound up running a bowling alley in Michigan. So what happens to Musk is a good question. What happens to Tesla? What happens if Tesla gets bought out by somebody else? What, what about Tesla that's good? Can they, besides the name, can they even save at that point? Um, yeah. So, um, but the other thing that is a, a dark cloud, I think, um, is the fact that the government, certainly in the post-Trump uh, era, is on their case a lot more than they had been. And the, my research suggested that, you know, the Trump administration had really soft peddled um, their, you know, all of the government's um, uh, examination of, of Tesla fires, Tesla crashes, the, um, the, you know, a pretty clear dishonesty in the way autopilot was marketed right on from the fact that they called it autopilot, leading you to think that it was autopilot when in fact it, it really wasn't autopilot. Um, those, those could all, um, you know, really slow them down. And, um, you know, how much of that is a political decision in the White House? We don't know, you know, or I don't know. And certainly how much was it a political decision of the Trump administration not to do that? I found fascinating the fact that Musk was completely on board with the, the, the you know, Trump world when he refused to shut down his factories despite the orders of the California government to do so, and for a guy who's supposed to be a scientific genius to deny, you know, that COVID was killing people, which he was essentially doing, um, seemed, you know, kind of weird. And yet, you know, we know he had secret meetings with Trump, um, and you know, that stuff is really it's re it's hard to get government agencies to really crack, come down on any manufacturer of any size. So. Um, it's it's not impossible to imagine that um, they they chose to go easy on him. You know, Jamie, I, I kind of have a question for you though. I, with the looking at the overall tone of your piece, I know you've acknowledged that you know he, he's sort of that sort of mad genius kind of character that he is. But overall, like there's a you have like a six points to consider about the techno king. You call him the techno king. No, he and calls all, himself the techno. Or he calls himself the techno king, and yeah. you refer to him that way. But they're all pretty negative. Like he's not so innovative. He's not so safe. He's not so green. Um, not so innocent. It's a long series of negatives. And I, although I know you know there are a lot of negatives that you can point out about him and about what he's done, and you acknowledge, yeah, he's got SpaceX going on, and you know he's helped move EVs forward by maybe by the cult of personality that he is, but that you said that other, you know, other automakers weren't able to make that happen. You know, they're, they're hamstrung by the constraints of being a General Motors that has 9 million bureaucrats that need to approve every move that they do. Was, was it a, really a bad thing if he managed to do what he did, even if what he did was sort of in an unconventional way? Like if not for him, would be still six years back in terms of EV adoption well, and the, the I, push for EVs? It's a fair question. Um, I don't think that um, he, everything he did was necessary to do that. Um, I don't think he had to say that his cars were going to work on autopilot um, when, when they couldn't. Uh, I don't think it was necessary to 
uh, you know, treat his workers badly, make people work um, through a pandemic or, you know, many of those things. I don't think it was necessary for him to take credit for, you know, inventing Tesla, writing the other guys kind of out of the history who were the real founders of the company. None of all the stuff I cite as negatives, I think are their negatives. Um, and I guess my point was, is that if you were to take a fair assessment of the man, that um, you would include those things. And I think some of those things, um, you know, they, they really, they haven't helped um, um, the business. One of the, the two revelations that I think probably were the most you know, newsworthy in the story have to do with the idea, which is extremely popular on the boards with the Tesla stand, um, is the idea that um, he's trying to help other people electrify their, their model lineups, when in fact, I interviewed people who told me that he, that he discouraged them from electrifying, didn't want to share technology with them, encouraged them to instead save the money and buy um, the, the tax credits from him, which, you know, uh, fl floated his company. Um, so he could have been more helpful that way. And also with regard to... Uh, were any of those guys willing to go on the record or were they all anonymous? They were off the record. So nobody would really say who they were to... Okay. Well, they did. I knew who they were. They did. Well, I know you know who they are. I'm not no, they didn't, want to go on, to they didn't want to go on the record because as I point out in the story, every single person I talked to, you know, uh, save one, I think, were like, I don't want to be on the record. There is absolutely no, quote, upside to be seen as um, criticizing Musk or praising him. You know, the one of the guys I cite is the guy who runs the, um, the um, website Electrek. He said he'd written over, I think, 7,500 stories about Tesla and Musk. 95% of them were favorable. And he wrote a story that was fact-based about fires and stationary Teslas, and he got death threats from mm -hmm. Tesla people. Just on the basis of, um, um, you know, um, Sam saying some, some things about me coming on the show um, to talk about Musk, you know, and, the, and them not having read the magazine story, but piecing together the idea that maybe it's, it says something bad about him. You know, I was getting hate emails and tweets and things like that about it. So it's it is an unusual situation. But I, I guess all I would ask people is not, you know, we don't have to condemn him. I don't regret that Tesla exists. I don't say I do. Uh, but I think that, you know, he's not he's not a god. Um, I think that people put a lot of faith in the guy who figures out the game, you know, um, first. So, you know, people put a lot of faith in Henry Ford um, and Thomas Edison. And, you know, they had a lot of really bad ideas. And when they spread them to other areas, um, they were, you know, they not only weren't necessarily profitable or successful, but, you know, they were fairly hateful and, you know, were, were, were bad for the people who worked for them and they were bad for, um, for the society. And, and, you know, I think that, Musk is in danger of doing that. If you look at what he talks about. But do you think he's more in danger? Do you think what he's doing for society is going to be overall 
yeah, if you had to, you know, take the scales of justice out there, that there's some negative. It's not like it's all in favor, but do you really think that it's the 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 net effect here is even when you take things like autopilot's name being I, misleading? I, I think it's. Do you it's, think the net effect is a negative effect in the end? I think that, um, as I said in the story, that um, I think that as with with all of these sort of um, historical industrial giants, um, it's uh, it's gray. I mean, the best that it can be is gray. Um, and that, you know, there's a lot of chapters left to be written and it will be interesting to see how he deals with them. But, you know, personally, you know, I think it's great on some level that he's going to have 24,000 satellites in low orbit around the Earth um, in, a, in a few years um, with our government's help. It will make him, you know, indescribably rich. He's barely describably rich as it is. Um, and, you know, maybe he's moved by a desire to bring um, Internet communication to people in the hinterlands. But at the same time, you know, that's a lot of space garbage to worry about. And a lot of, there's a lot of language in the Starlink, that's his satellite company's agreements with customers, having a debtor kind of off point, but they have to do with, like, who he has to listen to once he gets to Mars, which is what he's trying to fund. That's his big play, he says, is to get to Mars himself and to get man to Mars. But he basically in that rejects the world's governments as having anything to say with what he, you know, can get up to on Mars. Well, that's like that's like the plot of every science fiction. Well, it is. That's I ever mean, been out there is that Mars, Martians want to be Martians. Venetians want to be Venetians. Nobody wants to be tied to what's on Earth. So that just so like who wants to be tied to a government that's just a continent if you're on a planet, you know? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I guess, but I mean, you know, I guess I'm one of the lucky few who doesn't go to sleep at night thinking about how awesome it's going to be when I'm on Mars. But, um, but Mars, Mars is not awesome, by the way. Like you show well, up in Mars, you're wearing yeah. a spacesuit, you're still getting pummeled by radiation. It is not the utopia that that Musk and others have have made it out to be. It is a I harsh, said the way you said that, Robert, place. I was like, you've been there. You're like, it's not as cool, guys. I was there. I was there last <laughs> week. It's it's really crappy. It is yeah, not, yeah. yeah. It is not the utopia no. that Musk likes to make it out to be. It is no. not the savior. It's I mean, just... he's, he calls himself the Imperator of Mars. So, which like, is hilarious. Well, it, it it is hilarious, <laughs> but he's also trying to go to Mars. So, yeah. you know, I mean, there's a part of me called me old-fashioned, but if if I had 150 billion dollars and the philanthropic thing I was doing was trying to get myself to Mars, you know, I. I, I can't help but wondering whether somebody wouldn't say, well, maybe there's something better you could do with all that money. Maybe you could vaccinate the world or something like that. If you're really I don't know. Like we had about a president the- once who thought it was pretty cool to go to the moon, and we all liked him way back in the day. You know, uh, you we're going to go to the moon and do were, the other there, things, and the, the moon truth, was there crazy. Were, there were a lot of people who weren't that <laughs> enthusiastic about going to the moon. But, you know, yeah, yeah I mean, you know, sure, that's great. Um, he, he was an elected president. He was doing it. He wasn't using taxpayer. He was using taxpayer dollars, but by people who voted for him, not, um, you know. So is that better or worse? At least Musk is using money. He found a way to get some. Well, it's all still taxpayer money. I didn't elect. I didn't. No one voted for Musk. Yeah. But, <laughs> I might have. You know, that's, that's, was he an option? Because at this point. <laughs> that's that's a minor point. But I, I think um, I, you know, people can obviously think and do what they want. You know, he's not going to listen to me. Um, I think that, um, you know, I, I'm generally suspicious of people whose 
followers attribute um, godlike um, properties to them and um, act like they can't do any wrong and that they don't, you know, that they don't have this, this actual record of things that they're doing and how it's affecting people. Uh, he is a, um, he's in a, you know, everybody is hypocritical to one degree or another. I think he is a, he is a world-class hypocrite in that, um, you know, I mean, on the one hand, you're telling people that, you know, you, everybody's got to get an electric car because that's how we're going to save the planet. But I won't share my technology with other companies. I won't share my charging network, which would make owning an electric car more palatable to a lot of people. And um, at the same time, I'm going to be basically offering rich people rides to Mars, which is probably not the most um, uh, environmentally friendly thing to do. And I'm championing Bitcoin, which is an incredible energy suck and not, you know, regulated in the slightest um, as a currency or as, you know, a use of electricity. Um, and, you know, causing pollution, then changing your mind about whether you were for it while still going to Mars. I, you know, they're all, they're all, and then changing it back again a month later. I mean, he's a mercurial guy. He's having a laugh sometimes, I'm sure. He's a nut, um, you know, um, and, um, you know, he's, he's brilliant. So I just think when you're profiling somebody, if you want to take their full measure, you talk about the bad things as, along with the good things. And that's, what I set out to do. To to go back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, could he have done some of these things without being the kind of person that he has been? Uh, I'm wondering, you know, uh, like for Tesla, for example, you know, over their history, particularly over the last 10 years, you know, they have numerous times been um, on the verge of insolvency. And, you know, after they did their initial public offering in 2010, you know, um, they said that, you know, Musk said that, you know, they would never have to raise capital again. They would be able to self-fund themselves going forward. And since that time, they have done, I think, 13 capital raises and raised something on the order of about $18 billion from the capital markets. And a big part of that is because despite being a money-losing enterprise, he's had these fans that have been willing to, every time they need money and they go out and sell more shares of the company, they've been willing to put money into that and pump up the price of that stock. If he hadn't behaved the way he has, you know, with employees and all the other things he's done, do you think he could have built up that kind of fan base that would have given him all that money over the last 10 years that have allowed has allowed the company to get to this point. So, do you think it actually could have survived if he if he hadn't done that? I I, I couldn't say honestly. You know what how what, how it would have gone. I think this. I think you make a, an excellent point that they've almost been insolvent, and the way out of that has often he's pulled a rabbit out of his hat by promising something that didn't happen um, at all, or it didn't happen when he said it was going to happen. And he is, he's that, you know, he's mesmerized, uh, you know, a part of the investment community along with the, you know, just the, the sentient population. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's all closely intertwined, but, um, you know, I think part of it is the way that, that the stock market responded to the tech boom. 
And I think that that, that was, you know, partly owing to him, but also partly doing, owing to the fact that he was doing something new, um, that the market did not use its ordinary metrics for evaluating what he was doing. And that's, you know, one of the things that makes car makers so jealous, conventional car makers. But um, so, you know, promises and, you know, relatively small successes mean, mean, a, lot, mean a lot, apparently. You know, I mean, I think people have, you know, there's a sense that the world is changing and people want to be there. Um, and he certainly seems like a change agent. You know, I mean, I, I don't think you can argue anything but that he, he's a change agent and, um, and, and people want to be there. All right. Any other thoughts on uh, Elon and Tesla before we move on? <laughs> I have so many thoughts, but we'll be here for hours and hours <laughs> and hours. I mean, I've, I've written articles that, that have that have uh, been uh, extremely critical of Elon, and then friends who have tweeted about it have been attacked by Elon, and then his fans, where they've gotten death threats, and he doesn't care. I don't think that city doesn't care. I think that anytime you're that public of a figure and whether people like you or hate you and whether you're saying good or you're saying something bad, you will get hate mail, death threats. It is a, it is a completely it, different level versus anyone else I've ever covered. I've been covering tech, which means I've been covering a lot of very narcissistic individuals. And the, and, and you, at some point you have to take a bit of responsibility for the cult of personality that you've built around yourself. And Elon has not done that. I guess you do, but what do you what do you do? Take away the keyboard from people that you think said something in in your defense that huh? like, oh, he said something that was really snarky. No, but you can you can you can you can temper the the uh, you can temper the attacks that have been happening to uh, to uh, individual uh, individuals, absolutely. including journalists uh, and especially female journalists. Which at at one point he was very adamant about. Uh, going after for a while. He never said boo to me, but he went after a female journalist who was tweeting my article. <laughs> yeah, and he's gone after people like Laura Kolodny from Bloomberg and, and Lynette Lopez and, and many other female journalists that have written about him. I mean, I've, I don't even, I've been writing about Tesla for almost 15 years, and I've, I've, gotten, I've been on the receiving end of a lot of that hate. Fortunately, never any death threats. But I've gotten a lot of negative feedback You're, from his family. I've, I've gotten negative threat, negative feedback, and death threats for things that have nothing to do with Elon Musk. That are much smaller scale things. That when the right rabid fan has gets their hands on it, all of a sudden, uh, you know, you get exactly the kind of things you hear that women don't want to have to deal with on the mm. internet that have nothing to do with Elon. I'm just saying yeah, it's not yeah. exclusive. Oh, I think thing. I, and those people yeah. aren't the ones responsible for what their fans do. There, you a, can't hold them for there, responsible. Well, there's for that. a lot of misogyny, and uh, in, in especially. In, in people who follow the automobile industry and cars generally, um, that, that's unquestionable. But I do think that um, I agree with the fellas here that um, there's there's something people can do. I mean, and that's why I think the comparison to Trump is um, is is apt. Not I, Trump is a much worse person in my view and has done much more harm to the society. Uh, but it is. A similar thing where you don't, you're not accountable, and and your people are whatever he does. I'm for it. I don't care if it contradicts what he did last week or what I said yesterday. I'm for it. And the, you, there is a way to deal with it, which is you see somebody do something like that, and you you call them out. And you you know you either privately or publicly, um, you know, point out that they're they've gone out of bounds. 
you know, that was not that, you know, you're right that in almost every sphere that there are people who are going to say and do inappropriate things, but but better organizations and better people, um, you know, they they don't allow things to be done in their name that are just, you know, terrible, you know. I mean, you know, when, when you know, I mean, not that I'm a huge fan, but when the woman at the debate between John McCain and Obama started spouting some idiocy about Obama being, you know, a Muslim from, you know, far from Africa and, and John McCain, you know, in, in his supporters face was like, you're wrong, ma'am. You know, that's just not true. And that, you know, that was, he was hailed at the time for, you know, that being courageous, but I think that's the sort of thing that, you know, anybody should do in that circumstance is like, don't, don't let lies, people lie on your behalf. And don't let people, you know, make, uh, you know, violent threats to people who ha have just expressed their opinion, especially when, you know, I mean, when you when you don't def defend yourself to let these people go out and then just not have any agency for the fact that you've, you've essentially sick them on somebody, um, you know, that's a cop out at the very least. All right. On that note, let's uh, shift the shift the conversation a little bit. Um, one of the uh, questions we got from a listener uh, that I put it up today was uh, to ask you, Jamie, about your car collection. Uh, I know you've oh, got yeah. a number of older vehicles. Uh, why don't you tell us about what what you have and you know what you've had and what you have today and and if there's anything oh, you'd like to have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, um, I have. Um, too many cars now, and uh, I had even more too many cars before my children went to college. Um, and um, uh, right now, I'm on a I'm on a pretty heavy uh, Peugeot gag. Uh, um, what not not gag? Um, uh, what is the word? Um, oh hell, I, I'm, uh, I'm blanking. Now. I know but, the word um, you're thinking of, and I can't think uh, of it either. Right um, now, but. Jag. It's a Peugeot Jag. jag. Yes. Um, um, and um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really loving those. I, I guess uh, I, I should just start by saying I was born in Brooklyn, but I grew up in the town of Leonia, New Jersey, which was the headquarters for British Leyland. So I got, as a young person, I got a, a really warped idea of what cars people would drive around it. <laughs> you know, there's like 500 people who worked at this place in the town of 6,000 people. So there was an inordinate amount of MGBs and Triumphs and Jaguars and Land Rovers. And I saw the Range Rover prototype when I was on my bicycle when I was seven or something like that and all kinds of things like that. So I, I started out pretty much as an automotive Anglophile. And so I've owned MGs and Triumphs and Jaguars and a bunch of Lotuses. And I still have a Lotus Cortina and um, um, I have a 1936 Riley Kestrel uh, for the uh, mm. real oddballs out there. Um, and um, I have been into Volvos and Saabs and I have none now. And um, uh, what else? Um, haven't had a lot of German cars, but admire them a lot. N never owned a Porsche. Um, um, and I'm really into um, Lancias and Peugeots. And um, I have a... Uh, a 68 travel all that's kind of my work truck 
um, an international and I have a uh, 92 Oldsmobile silhouette, which I bought at the height of the pandemic um, from a fellow in Palm Springs um, without sight unseen. Um, I should mention that in my copious spare time, I run a picture car business. And we work on a lot of TV shows supplying cars, so um, I can often deduct the prices of the cars and um, rent them out to movies. And so that, in part, um, played a role in my buying the Oldsmobile Silhouette, which you'll remember as the Cadillac minivans um, from Get Short. <laughs> yeah. um, but it was, um, it, it's been in the um, TV show Dr. Death, which is just out now, and um, paid for itself. So uh, uh, what I would like to get, um, I, I guess I've reached an age where there's, there's not that much new stuff that, um, I, or new old stuff that I want to get. Nothing that I've sold, you know, has, I've, I've lost a lot of sleep over. Um, so, um, so I can't really, I, you know, I, I, you know, probably some other French or I, I'd like to get a, a Matra D jet, um, and, um, oh, you know, an R10 Gordini or something like that. But, um, I, I still have a hankering for another Lotus Land. The new, um, uh, is it, what is the name of the new um, Lotus, the mid-engine, not the Imara? Uh, the Imira? Is it Imira? Imira. That looks pretty great to me. I really like the Evora a lot. Um, I like, um, you know, uh, 928s are looking good to me, Porsches. I don't know why. Um, um, but um, There's something cool about the 928. Oh, yeah. They're, 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 they're cruisers. My son just bought one for 1300 bucks that he managed to get running and it, it's, it's pretty great. Um, I mean, so that's a real value proposition. I can't, I, you know, I, I've been fortunate uh, that some cars I own went up in value and I was able to sell them. Um, that kind of saved my bacon during the recession. Um, but, um, um, but I, I, I they, things get too expensive. They, they, it scares me and I, I kind of want to not either get out of them or not. I, I can't afford to, go there, you know. So there's a lot of things that used to appeal to me that I'll never, ever, you know. Um, I remember my dad, one day when I was, I was probably like 10, we had a neighbor who had a DB4 Aston that was perfect that somebody had given him as a present. He had some rich friend and he offered it to my dad for 1500 bucks. And he was like, yeah, and what would I do with that? And then this next day, a kid at the local shell station offered him a 289 Cobra for 2000 bucks, which was cheap even then. And he was like, no. And so, you know, there was a day in like the, like right before the crash in the late eighties where had he bought them, you know, it would have been a $3,000 investment would have become worth over a million dollars. And, um, uh, I'll never, uh, own either of those cars, although I wouldn't mind it. <laughs> What uh, what got you into cars in the first place? It's unclear. Um, I know my parents brought me home from the hospital in an MGA Roadster um, that they had bought and gone around Europe. That's in. probably it. The fumes from that probably affected that your brain. Definitely part of it. No seatbelts, no nothing. And, and um, you know, lead gasoline, of course. Um, but um, they, they had gone long after they had been married, but before they had any children, 
on a trip to Europe and where they had bought this MGA. And I heard that story a lot. And for whatever reason, it really resonated with me. It just seemed like such a fun and exciting thing to do. So by, by the time I was, you know, well, supposedly the first word I spoke was I, we were driving up the East Side Drive and I saw a Volkswagen Beetle and I said, Volkswagen drive in. Um, and um, so I was far obsessed after that. And it sort of just outstripped my parents. And I bought my first car when I was 12 was an old MGA um, for $50 with four friends and we fixed it up and, um, but it never got it running. And then some guy came and wanted to buy the back half of it and gave us like a hundred bucks. So we were like, oh wow, sure. You know, now that would seem like sacrilege, but um, um, so yeah, so I've just, I've always been into it. And I, I probably owned well over a hundred cars, if not 150 cars. Um, but I have some that I have a Mark II Jag that I've owned since 1987. That's the one I've had the longest, though not necessarily the the one I'd keep if I had to get rid of them all. I think I would still keep an MGA, which I have, and I would probably keep a Lancia Fulvia. They're kind of my two favorite cards. I once interviewed, um, oh God, um, oh no, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. Um, He's the guy who designed the Range Rover or engineered the Range Rover and British guy um, just died a few years ago. Um, it would be a much better story if I remembered his name, um, but you'll find it. On, <laughs> Jerry McGovern? No, no, no. This is, the, you know, he uh, goes back to the, the, 50s, old, the yeah, in 60s. Um, oh, my gosh. Uh, in any case, um, he... Um, I was really excited to meet him, and I had asked him, we were on a three-day rally together, um, what his favorite um, car had been in his life, and he said it was an MGA coupe, um, which I felt vindicated in, um, uh, by. Um, oh, man. Um, he also worked on the Triumph Dolomite Sprint. He was he remained through the Leyland, early Leyland years, but he was... Um, Rover engineer. I don't know. Let's see if I can figure this out. This will drive me nuts. Hopefully, you'll edit this part out. <laughs> Charles Spencer King. That's it. David Bash. Yeah. It, Charles it, King. Or yeah, Bash. Uh, but he. What was his nickname? Is uh, Spen. Spen King. Yes, that's the guy. Yeah. He, he died in a bicycle accident, ironically, um, in England. Um, but yeah, um, lovely, lovely guy. Um, he was he was fascinating too. He was really pissed off with um, Land Rover at that point because um, he felt like they there was a lot of things they could do in the area of suspension to make Defenders less rough riding. And he was also an enemy of giant A-pillars, which he felt blocked people's vision, which are subjects that are still near and dear to my heart. Um, so, yeah, I guess one of the things about my Peugeot obsession currently is that I really like um, cars that um, ride well. Um, and um, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I can't really understand why um, the, the current generation of, of car buyers seems to have uh, forgotten everything that we knew about how to make cars ride well, you know, the whole 
obsession with bigger wheels and tires when you know that we we know that that makes for a worse riding car and i think a lot about what autonomy will do to what you know how sophisticated suspensions are you know is it really does it really matter if you're not driving what a car if it has no steering feel you know like well you know what's going to make a car sporty versus one that's not i would put it out to you guys you know like does it really matter if it's riding on a you know antique SUV chassis or something you know more modern? Well, I think I think when we get to that stage, you know what we we, we probably will want to pivot back to comfort because you know I I don't I don't see most of those vehicles you know driving in a really sporty manner. I think when people want to you know have that kind of sporty feel, they're going to want to drive themselves as opposed to be driven. Um, mm-hmm. and so I think we may see, you know, a shift back to that more plush ride, plush, but well-controlled, you know, which is, I think, you know, one of the, the differentiators, you know, older American cars, you know, were often plush, but they were also floaty and, you know, right. moving around a lot, you know, and what you want is a balance of, you want that, you want minimized body motion, but you want to absorb the road so you're not right. really feeling it, you know. Right. So, um, so oh, go ahead, Robbie. Oh, so yeah, we need to go back to smaller wheels and larger sidewalls. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because I know, I know it looks cool. That's the entire reason. That's it. That's the right. only reason we have well, these giant it wheels. Look and, cool. and it, it looks it, way cool. But it's it, yeah, it's it's sort of ruining the ride for a lot of it, uh, these luxury vehicles. It was funny. I was at the GM proving ground once and was getting driven around in the old 1930s Buick Y job, and uh, which was like so cool. Um, but when we got out. To look at it, um, it had 13-inch wheels, and I was like, you know, why did they do that? And here's like, he was like for ride. And then we got into the Escalade with the 22-inch dubs, and uh, it, it rode like shit. And, uh, <laughs> and, he, and he was like, um, the, th- the thing that was funny was that the guy was like, oh yeah, you know, they're terrible. But my observation from the outside was that. The, for for several years, car makers were just like, you know what, we we don't we're not going to sell you 20 inch wheels because it'll it'll diminish the ride and handling of this car. And um, finally, you know, after about a minute, the dealers were like, I'll sell you 20 inch wheels. And, uh, <laughs> and then you know the car makers were all just like, oh the hell with it, you know, like here you go, here's your 20 inch wheels. Um, and, Fine. Uh, Ian Callum, when he was, we went on the first walk around the, um, the uh, I-Pace, he just sort of said, yeah, I know, I know, the wheels are too big, that's what people want, you know, they, they, can, they can live with them. Um, so, um, you know, that, that's the problem with giving the people what they want. You give them yeah. what they want. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it originally, you know, going to bigger wheels originally started with the need to have clearance for bigger brakes. You wanted, you know, better, better braking performance. And that was fine if they had stopped, you know, at like 15 <laughs> inch, you know. Just better but, and bigger and bigger know. and bigger. <laughs> and then, you know, now, you know, 18, 19, 22, 24 inch wheels. It's, it's crazy. You know, although, you know, think cars like the, the Shelby GT500, 
you know, that's got 15-inch brake rotors to begin with. You know, so you've got to have big wheels well, to do those in things. Well, and in fairness, there's still there's something to choose between different car makers. Some do better mm-hmm. jobs of, of, of accommodating absurdly large wheels than, than others. Um, and, uh, you know, the worst-case scenario is where they're just like, okay, let's just slap on some bigger wheels, and that's, you know, that's it. But um, I used to have a, a Mini Cooper that I felt – when I put steelies and snow tires on it, it rode significantly better than it did on the bigger wheels with run flats, um, which was sort of distressing to realize. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. You know, as the as the world shifts towards electrification, uh, you know, one of the the interesting trends of the last 10, 15 years has been the the concept of resto mods, you know, taking these old classic cars and putting modern hardware in them, modern engines, modern brakes, suspension. So, you know, you've got that classic look, that vintage look, but it it drives like a more modern car. And now, you know, we're starting to see, you know, I mean, there's been people that have done uh, electric conversions on old cars, especially old, cars, old, especially like, old like, DW Beetles and Beatles Porsche 911s. And Porsche those are popular those are ones popular for this. Ones for this. But, but um, with, what do you think about the idea of electrifying some of these old classic cars? cars. I, I have I no have problem, problem with that. I guess I would be the sort of person who, if I could afford something like that, would want to preserve the old car so it could be restored to its running form. But I wrote the, for a story, I wrote the E-Type that Jaguar had converted into electric power. And I had driven E-Types and owned one once. And I thought it was, it felt a lot like an E-Type. You know, I missed the engine noise, but it was very fast and it was very pleasant. And so, you know, if, if people can afford it and that's what they want to do, I don't, I don't really have a problem with that. Um, in general, with resto mods, I'm, I'm for reversible um, changes. You know, uh, I know in the picture car business, it's, it's maddening because, you know, you're looking for a bunch of, you know, 73 GM stuff and you find a bunch of cars and then they all turn out to be on 20-inch rims and, you know, um, and... and, and, and <laughs> You know, and they're just, they're unusable. I mean, you, it, it totally kills the period vibe. And frankly, I think most things look best the way they were originally styled to be. So um, I would, um, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to be doing any resto mods myself. One guy was talking to me about an interesting project, though, recently. He, um, when Saab had to get rid of their two-stroke in the 96 um, forgive me if I go deep in anorak territory here, but um, they um, were looking for a V4 that would fit and be um, more powerful. And um, they originally approached Lancia about using the Fulvia engine, but it turned out to be too expensive. And they used the Ford V4 from Europe, which was not was a pretty coarse engine and not that powerful. Um, so... Um, his idea is to build a Saab 96 with the Lancia engine. And that's the kind of resto mod I can get behind. Yeah, that, that would be fun. Um, yeah. Then the reason I asked, uh, you know, because one of the things we're starting to see is uh, car makers that have traditionally offered 
crate engines um, for people doing, you know, either restorations or resto mods or racing vehicles, track vehicles. Um, they're they're now starting to offer um, electric conversion kits, um, or at least they've they've announced them. Last year, GM um, did a, a, a concept. They took an old uh, Chevy K5 Blazer um, and put a Chev- Chevrolet Bolt uh, electric motor in it. They they put an adapter on there so it bolts up to the hydromatic transmission, put the bolt battery pack in the back of the blazer, um, and uh, they, they announced plans to offer this kit with the, the power electronics and the wiring and the motor and everything um, to, to do these kinds of modifications. Uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, during the Ford uh, or during the Woodward Dream Cruise, Ford announced uh, or tw- uh, tweeted out um, that they were going to launch uh, – the Ford Illuminator package from uh, Ford, Ford Performance, uh, which is uh, an electric motor, uh, which is presumably going to be, they haven't given details yet. They're, they said they're going to have more details at SEMA in November. Um, but I'm guessing that this is probably going to be one of the electric motors uh, that they're using for the, uh, uh, for the F-150 Lightning, uh, modified you know, so that it can be installed in a variety of different vehicles. Um, and I think... It's going to be interesting to see how they do this. I think the the big challenge installing the motors is fairly straightforward, for the most part. The big challenge with most of these cars is where do you stuff the batteries? And sure. I'll be curious to see how they, what kind of solutions they come up with for that, because that's that's you know it's hard to package those and you know figure out where to put them, you know to balance the weight out, and how to you know do the battery management system for stuff like that. Yeah, and, and, you know, related safety issues and things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a growing recognition in the kind of in the, um, you know, um, old industry that um, they need as many revenue streams as they can think of um, going forward. And, um, you know, if it makes them money and helps them, you know, stay in business, it seems relatively benign to me, you know. I think that there will be gasoline cars around for a, a long time, certainly once we're gone. But, um, um, you know, uh, I think that there's a whole world that it's almost hard to uh, imagine, um, you know, that, that's going to exist in, in a, the completely electric sphere, which will be retrofitting cars to do that. But also, you know, I mean, when you think about the hot rodding possibilities, with you know chips and computers and more batteries and you know more motors and things like that, bigger motors um you know i mean it it you know generations of misspent youth uh, away you know i'm i'm still uh, yeah, yeah. holding out oh. oh sorry i'm still holding out hope that i can buy my my first car which was a 69 Datsun 2000 that my friend now owns that he has removed the ba- he removed the engine out because he bought another one that he wanted to put the engine in so he bought mine to put the well, he bought mine then bought another one because the other one the body was straighter and um, but the engine was kind of crap on that one I want to buy that car back and I this is like a 
10-year quest so I can make it in, so I can do a resto mod EV out of a, wow. an old roadster. All I need is That'd like cool. 60 miles of range. I'm not going to go anywhere. I just want a convertible <laughs> EV. That's all I want in the world. No it one, doesn't need to be practical in any way. It no, need it does not need happen. to be practical <laughs> in any okay. way whatsoever. Um, and I, I think a lot of people have been like, you know, salvaging uh, stuff, uh, engines out of the Leafs and getting battery packs from 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 uh, from Teslas and stuff like that. So I like the idea that like, oh, you can just buy a new one, which is nice. I, I yeah. think a Mach-E or a Lightning uh, uh, motor, though, probably a little too powerful for a car that weighs about 12 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Well, I think what, you know, one of the, uh, the other day I actually tweeted out something about this. I think uh, John Volker had uh, posted uh, something about it. And I um, suggested that uh, GM's new Altium batteries, because one of the interesting things GM's done with the batteries for their new EVs is they've incorporated the battery management system into the individual modules instead of at the battery pack level. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea is you can reprogram them so you can mix and match ones with different cells, different chemistries, um, and balance them out in software. And you know, if, uh, you know, I, 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 um, copied, uh, Mark Royce on that and said, you know, what, what do you think, Mr. Royce, uh, would this, you know, would this, uh, does this sound like something you might do? And he, he actually liked the tweet. So, you know, maybe that's the direction the GM's going to go with their, uh, their crate motor packages is use the Altium modules and, and offer into sell individual modules so that you can take those because they're, you know, they're smaller than a full battery pack. Yeah. You can take those and stuff them in somewhere in the car <laughs> stuff, stuff them in random spots i, I i'm already like trying I'm like okay i gotta put some some in the trunk but i don't want it to be back heavy so there's some in the passenger and then a few up front so you're running like wires back and forth in order to Just a little, everywhere you look there's yeah. a little bit of battery yeah there's a little bit of battery here a little bit of battery here a little bit of battery here anywhere there's space you got to redo the <laughs> suspension because now it's going to be all bogged down but i i think it can happen it, it, you wonder about some of the new technologies. That, uh, I was reading a while back about the idea of the external airbag that, uh, you know, your car will sense it's about to hit a pedestrian or somebody that um, will set its airbag off so that, that they'll, yeah, I mean, if a modern Silverado hit you, um, I don't know how many airbags it would take. Because that is just <laughs> bouncing away. I mean, you're still getting hit by something. <laughs> Yeah, that's face high and and yeah. seven thousand pounds. But but at least you know at least then it's the pavement that's killing you and not the self. <laughs> yeah, I guess. That's, that, uh, that's yeah, right. and also what happens if like a tumbleweed because there's some large tumbleweeds comes out and also that just yeah. shoots off. <laughs> I think I, they they there was that a bicycle helmet. Did you see that? That when it oh yeah that that it became an airbag too. That, yeah. that was pretty. That was pretty cool. I had a near-death um, scooter experience when I was sent to test an electric scooter, Chinese brand. I don't even remember the name, but it was perfectly great. And um, um, I was riding actually to go pick up my MGA at the local gas station where, um, you know, it was one of those like upright scooters, not like a motor scooter, but like a, oh, like a razor scooter that went yeah, yeah. 27 miles an hour. And the front fork um, collapsed, and I was thrown from it at 27 miles an hour. And it was like the only time I ever went out without my helmet. And I managed through. I just like 
muscle memory to keep my head off from scraping the pavement. But it, like I screwed myself up so much that I wish I had airbags. And oh. uh, yeah, <laughs> it was a drag. It turned out I had been um, un, I had been releasing it from the collapsed position in the wrong way. So it was really. Oh. I told the company I was, you know, I I wasn't sure, and they were like, "Well, it's kind of your fault." But and I was like, "Well, you would say that." And then they showed me part of the owner's manual that I hadn't read, um, uh, and I was. RTFM. They were like, "But just just so there's no hard feelings, we'll send you our new, even faster model." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. Lock the fork in place. There's a fa- times because uh, you know. And you know, I'm happy to ride a bicycle, but you know, I, I just um, yeah. Here's the faster one. <laughs> well, that was the thing when people were like saying segways were going to take over the world. I mean, the segway oh, weighed a lot, and if you think about people riding on sidewalks at 15 miles an hour on segways, you know, like how many people were going to be hurt by that? You know, there's, there's a. It, I mean. As you, the more you know about the automobile industry and the more you think about people, it's like so many things people invent are have so many inherent dangers that people really don't want to talk about. Today marked a great day in history because Algeria became the last con- country to sell leaded gasoline as to the to the driving public, although the whole world still uses it for propeller planes, um, which is probably not necessary and um, bad for you. But I mean, just like, you know, that would be one example, but the, the just the, the the correlation between speed and injury, you know, I mean, human beings have really plumbed in ways that nobody ever thought of for the longest time. Um, and um, so, you know, you know, I'm, I'm pro electric car, but I guess I, I think about like, well, what is it that we're not, thinking about that is going to be a really a big problem with all this stuff. Unintended consequences. Yeah. The unintended consequences. What, what, what might they be? I mean, you can see, um, the materials and whether they're properly recycled is a real issue. Um, you know, I, I like to tell people who are critics, well, they'll recycle them properly, but we've never recycled anything properly. So, um, <laughs> that's, that's probably optimistic. Um, Fires, you know, I mean, there's gasoline car fires every day, but, um, you know, at least you can pour water on them. So battery fires might be more difficult and they might have to have fire suppression systems built in that are, are you know, capable of dealing with them quickly. Um, I'm sure the list goes on. Yeah, there there's definitely going to be plenty of plenty of issues that we've got to deal with, including the you know the aforementioned grid uh, you talked about earlier. Um, we've still got lots of lots of stuff to sort out there with just how we're going to get all the energy for these EVs. Um, why don't we uh, wrap up with a couple more listener questions, um, and uh, then we'll let you go, uh, Jamie. Sure. Um, I th- 
for uh, Bryn Barenhausen asks, um, I think you've all made it clear that you are in favor of the electrification transition and understand the need for it, climate change, etc. So do you ever feel guilty reviewing the gas guzzlers, large SUVs, pickups, anything from Dodge, uh, or is that just part of the Dodge, uh, part, of the, part of the job? Uh, I have no guilt whatsoever reviewing uh, the things that are out there. Anything Zero, from none. Dodge. <laughs> well, um, it, you go. Oh, I did. I, I never feel guilty. So there we go. I'm like, I love driving that stuff. I'll drive it as long as they make it. Sorry. So no guilt, zero guilt. <laughs> I think there's, I, I think I do have a tinge of guilt based on, you know, some of the cars that are out there and I'm like, Hey, this is a good car. Um, and I, and, but it's, it's also where is electrification at when it comes to a lot of these vehicles? Like, does it fill in, is it capable of, of filling in the need for that vehicle? Um, and right now, for, for many of those vehicles, it doesn't. It doesn't really fill it in. But, but I think that hybrids, plug-in hybrids, do fill in that need. It's, you know, and I think there's that, that it comes down to the automakers make these large uh, gas-guzzling cars because they make a lot of money. The, you know, these cars make a ton of money for them, and they sell a lot of them. Uh, and that's why, you know, as we see the, trans, uh, the transition to electrification, um, you know, people are selling SUVs. They're selling small SUVs. It's a growing market. They're not smelling, selling small sedans. They're not selling um, station wagons, which would be perfect for an SUV because they're, they're, they're long. They have a lot, lot of room for a battery, but they also have uh, better, you know, you can get better um, drag coefficient out of them. Nope. People want SUVs for whatever reason, um, you know. And so it, there, I think individually as a human who, who lives in California and is watching, you know, the state burn, you know, six months out of the year, I, there is, I do have a bit of a, a, a tinge of, of, of uh, I don't know, of guilt. Um, but at the same time, uh, whether or not I review these uh, or not, they, they are going to be purchased. That's, that's the other thing. And I think there is a... Truth. As I as I talk to people and I tell them like you know what buy your big giant truck and this is something I've been saying for years buy your big SUV buy your big thing that you want to take to 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 the lake and drag your 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 motorcycles or your jet skis or whatever but really look into try an EV I think people once they drive one I think that really changes their mind about what EVs are just drive it for like five miles because it's it's it's, a, it's not what you think it is it's a lot of fun to drive and I think that second car should be an EV for most people and I've written this article before and I've been you know sort of beating the drum you know you're gonna buy the big giant truck you're gonna buy the big gas guzzling whatever because that's you and that's 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 so America. Nothing more American than buying something that you really don't need for uh, for something that's never going to happen. But you're you're ready. <laughs> but also, you know, look at that. I, I think uh, for me, it has been like very much like okay, you're you're going to buy this. I can't stop you. I'm going to tell you which one's the best. And but I'm also going to tell you, you know, you should go out and you should try an EV. And you should make that your second car because that second car is going to be the one you're going to drive all the time because you just want to run to the store and you don't want to try to park your F-250 like supercab <laughs> at the Target when you can just park your ID4, <laughs> go in, go out and get on with your life. So <laughs> I think I balance it out by sort of the uh, edutainment uh, and, and telling people, hey, you know what? Drive an EV. It's cool. Do it. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I totally agree with that. You know, I, I mean, I 
you know, it does tickle my lizard brain, you know, driving, you know, really fast cars and, you know, and, and trucks. I, you know, I, my logical brain knows that, you know, most of these vehicles are ridiculous. <laughs> but as you said, you know, people are going to buy them. And, you know, so, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, we, we try to help people understand, you know, what are they getting, you know, for their, for their money. Um, and, you know, I've always, you know, as long as I've been doing this stuff, you know, when people ask me, you know, what to buy, you know, I always start with a series of questions about what their use case is, what are they going to do with it? And, you know, try to help guide them in the right direction. It, you know, rarely works. Um, you know, they usually are looking more for affirmation of what they've already decided on, but, you know, I at least (laughs) try to guide them in that direction. And now, you know, we're getting to the point where there's a a whole bunch of new EVs coming to the market. You know, I'm increasingly comfortable in recommending to people that they at least consider these vehicles. Go out and, if they can, you know, test drive them, see what they're like, you know, because I think that, in as you said, in, in the vast majority of cases, you know, an EV with 250 to 300 miles of range is going to meet 99% of their needs, you know, and for the rare occasion when they might need something else, go rent something. Right. Right. Um, um, I um, sort of sidestep that problem um, personally uh, by writing the first anti-SUV op-ed piece for the New York Times in 1994, and I stopped getting invited to car launches for uh, quite a while. And then, uh, and then basically my magazine um, um, was like, ah, we're not going to send you to drive that because you'll hate, you'll just hate it. And uh, so, you know, I, I sort of was forced to take a more uh, open-minded view of them and, and evaluate them for what they were. But um, um, yeah, I mean, they raised, it raised a lot of issues, but, but, Going back to something you both said, people call me all the time and would go like, oh, I, I know you're going to hate me, but, you know, like we really are digging this Ford excursion. Um, and uh, you'd be like, you know, I'd be like, well, for why? And they're like, oh, you know, we have two kids and, um, it, you know, um, you know, it's like we might go away somewhere. And you're like, well. I remember when people used to get in a Beetle with five kids in the backseat and um, go on vacation, you know, so I know it can be done, but, uh, you know, but um, often they would get them and then they'd be sick of them quickly because they did, they felt embarrassed and it was, they were clumsy and things like that. SUVs got a lot better. So that's one thing that makes me, I mean, I've gotten, you know, driven SUVs that get 37 miles per gallon. And when that's happening, you know, I, if they were a car, if it was a station wagon, which I'd prefer, they got 40 miles per gallon, 42 miles per gallon, that would be better. But, you know, at that point, I think it's not, you know, like whatever. I don't, I, you know, in general, I have a concern with the idea, well, it's like what, it's what people want and what, you know, they, you know, we got to give the people what they want. And people, you know, people want a lot of things, you know, that, they shouldn't do, and I don't. I'm not advocating that you outlaw things like that. But I would, I would tax things based on their consumption differently in a in a in an ideal society that would reflect what they were doing to other people's health, to the roads, uh, to, you know, to the off roads with these these much heavier vehicles in the way that trucks are taxed 
much more heavily. Um, um, and, you know, um, could be the whole tax policy could be done differently. I think, you know, people want to, you know, um, you know, people want to drive drunk. They want to have sex while they're driving. You know, that doesn't mean it's a good idea. People and, you know, people go, oh, well, that's where they make all their money. Well, you know, you can make money selling, you know, drugs to school children too. You make lots of money, but like that doesn't mean you have to do it. Um, you know, I feel like the industry is disingenuous when it says like, hey, you know, we our hands are tied. We're just giving the people what they want. Well, yeah, but, you know, I mean, that's true about, you know, the food industry where people eat too much stuff that's bad for them and they could really eat more healthy foods that, you know, it, sure, it's their fault, sort of, but it, it doesn't, I don't think it, it uh, exculpates them from any responsibility. You know, the whole notion that because it's bigger, it ought to cost more, you know, or that an SUV that's based on a Ford Focus should cost almost double what a Ford Focus does. You know, that's that's artificial and that was created. And, you know, it was it was a giant con of the of the world public that people think, well, all right, it's three inches taller. So I should pay ten thousand dollars more for the same pieces. Um, You know, it was it was a game changer for the companies. And you see what their fundamental impulse is, you know, and not that there's anything surprising or illegal about it. But when, you know, where there became chip shortages, Suddenly they're like, well, you only have enough chips for our most expensive cars. Sorry, everybody. You know, I mean, you know, maybe that's natural response, but, you know, it's not that civic minded. Um, And, um, you know, profit maximization is the is the biggest game. That's probably been true for always. But I think that there were exceptions to the rule. And, you know, they, they invent these kind of. Um, paradigms that people just buy into. The, the idea that that I've called out in my 1994 story, you're selling these this this housewife a you know a 6,000 pound suburban on the basis that she's going to be safer, which was demonstrably untrue then when big SUVs rolled over at 400 percent the rate of regular cars. That you know, you're that's because you love the environment so much. Well, you're getting 12 miles per gallon, and that you you know that you're going to actually go off road, which they knew statistically wasn't going to happen either. So, um, you know, there, if it, if it's just people buying what they want, you know, what? Well, why are we spending, you know, 40 billion dollars a year marketing SUVs and you know 130 dollars marketing station wagons? It's interesting because they, yep, they you know, they, the, the, the sort of, well, we're going to, we're giving them what they want with the large trucks. And then they come out with the Maverick and the Santa Cruz and people are like overwhelmingly very excited about those vehicles, which means that they've been spending years and years telling us that people don't want small trucks. And then they show us a small truck and we're like, yay. Yeah, or when Scion <laughs> came out and they were incredibly successful out of the box. And then they, in the second generation, they bloated everything up. And it's, they kind of were stiff and, you know, people before that even happened, people were like, well, why did you make it get worse gas mileage and make it bigger if it was such a success? And they were like, well, we're just giving the customers what they told us they wanted. But what they wanted was the original Scion, the one they bought. And now you're telling us that, you know, it's not it's two years later and they don't. That's not what they want anymore. You know, so I uh, that 
I think that, you know, I mean, that, that may be as insoluble as like, how do you get a clean electrical grid? It's such a macro problem. But, but you know, you're basically, there's a part of them that's playing to the worst in people. I once was doing, when I did this story for the New York Times Magazine, when they, Lincoln Blackwood and the uh, Cadillac Escalade or what, EXT, whatever the pickup truck was yeah. called. Yeah. Um, and I, I got sent into some deep, uh, like basement, like, you know, marketing think tank that Ford had. And I was talking to these people about it, and about like, you know, the psychology of SUV buying and pickup truck buying. And they were remarkably frank about how it was tied to people's, um, uh, you know, uh, sexual feelings and um, other feelings that like, I was like, well, like, who buys a F-350? Who's your, your basic customer? And they were like, he's a lonely guy. And I'm like, well, so how does feelings of inadequacy? How does does having this truck help? And they're like, well, he he's the guy who wants to be the guy who, when your neighbor goes, I got to remove two refrigerators. He's like, I'll come help you do it. I got room in my truck. Um, Like, okay. And and they also were saying, you know, like their research had shown them this is you know 1999 or something, 2000, 2001 that people, the women were driving most of the SUV buying decisions. And they're one of the things they explained other than people liking to ride up high and feeling safer because they were up high and feeling safer because they were told they were safer because they were in a 6,000 pound car um, was that minivans and before them station wagons had like really crushed woman's spirit when they'd pull up to a traffic light some guy would pull up, you know, some handsome young man. And when he realized she was, you know, probably at a car full of kids, he wouldn't look at her. But when you were in an SUV and he couldn't see in the back because the windows were smoked out and because you were up so high, um, you looked like you were in play. Even, you know, even if you were a, uh, you know, not looking to be in play, uh, it made people feel good to know that they were getting checked out in that way, which seemed really like, you know, um, weird insights into what, <laughs> what, what goes in the marketing. Yeah, marketing what, is a creepy, creepy, creepy place. <laughs> yeah, I asked them, I, it is. I have this new engine line you call Power Strokes. Um, and, and like, what exactly does that mean? And they were like, well, what do you think? And I was like, well, it sounds kind of dirty. And they were like, exactly. <laughs> um, <so. laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, all right. It's a great world. Power stroke, everyone. That's it the uh, title of the uh, yeah, title of the show we're, now. <laughs> we're 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 all doomed. <laughs> okay. Uh, one one final question I want to uh, address from Sean Whitehurst, um, and uh, he's uh, he's curious about what advanced driver assist technologies are going into massive vehicles, uh, larger vehicles. Will a U-Haul in a few years enable a novice to tow safely? Uh, do fire trucks have surround view cameras? Can a garbage truck tell the color of a dumpster and per- align perfectly to fit it or to lift it? Um, so as far as the fire trucks with surround view cameras, I don't know. Um, I, if they don't today, they probably will in the next few years in the next generation of trucks. Um, 
same thing with the uh, garbage trucks. I, I imagine you know at some point they will start equipping those with sensors that uh, help to um, help help the drivers to see you know where the dumpsters are or the garbage cans. Um, right. The the U-Hauls. That's that's an interesting one. You know, I think that is something that we will see. Um, actually starting to happen, you know, to enable safer towing, because we're already in, you know, in trucks that people buy today, uh, there, you've already got features like trailer sway control, um, and trailer backup assist, um, that, and, and GM's got their, their invisible trailer technology, where you can mount a camera on the back of the trailer, um, and, and then it's connected to the truck, and you can see on the screen inside, you can actually see what's behind the trailer, um, and I, I expect that we will see those kinds of features coming into, you know, as companies like U-Haul replace their fleets, I imagine we will see some of those kinds of features being put into there because, you know, if, you know, for the companies, it makes sense for them to do that. Um, you know, if they can, if they can make trailer towing safer and easier, um, for their customers, they're less likely to incur damage to their vehicles, so it's going to cost them less, um, and their customers are more likely to come back um, and rent from them again if they have trucks that have those kinds of capabilities on there. So I do expect we will see that. I want to. I want to. I want to counterpoint that U-Haul uh, thing because um, every U-Haul I've ever have ever rented has always been like about twenty, thirty years old. Um, nothing. <laughs> I, I will not. Nothing works, but about. 80% of the anything that's supposed to work on the, the U-Haul does not work. That's uh, true. That's they never they're always like the worst examples is. of vehicles that are actually still road legal at this point. So I think I think it'll I think it'll 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 um, end up in U-Hauls as it ends up in this as the standard feature for the lowest of the lowest uh, trim of those vehicles because U-Haul makes a lot of money off that insurance. They make all, they, <laughs> and, and I don't think U-Hauls ever cared if anyone's ever scraped up one of their things because they just like they, either A, they charge you an arm and a leg because you didn't get the insurance <laughs> or B, they have the insurance, they collect the money and they never fix the never scrape. Never fix anything. <laughs> yeah. Have they ever willingly fixed anything? No. My, my cousin moved... And we parked somewhere, and the U-Haul broke down, and they were like, too bad. <laughs> yeah, let us know what happens. Um, yeah, um, all this talk about trailers reminds me of one pet peeve, though, I just have to share. It's like, why is it that cars can't tow anymore, that the stated limits for what an SUV based on a car will tow are often double or more the capacity? Which is another way to steer people into more profitable SUVs. Now, Camry, if you try, if you you know you couldn't get a trailer hitch for a Camry, but you know things that you can, they're like, oh, it's it's a thousand pounds. That's max you can tow. So you can tow a small U-Haul trailer, but you can't tow two thousand or thirty-five hundred, whatever they say, Rav Four is, and there's no towing package that will get you there. So, I think that's part of the conspiracy. I saw a, um, a a Subaru Legacy wagon. Uh, this is about a month ago, towing a single horse trailer in Germany. <laughs> so, okay. if you have a Subaru Legacy wagon and you have a single horse trailer, you should have no problem towing your horse around. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, Europeans have a much different um, thing. I have a friend who has a V90 Volvo who had a basically shit, send to Europe to get the Volvo tow kit for the V90, which they wouldn't recommend at the dealer 
uh, here, and they were trying to get him to get an XC90 instead, but he really didn't want it. He managed to figure it out, now can tow his Alpha race car with his Volvo, but he's the only guy on his block who can do that. <laughs> Excellent. All right, I stand corrected on U-Haul then. <laughs> I just don't trust you know, U-Haul, that's all. <laughs> 15, 20 years from now, you might have some U-Haul yes. that have some trailer backup assist or Maybe. trailer as soon as it's yeah. As soon Maybe. as it's like they don't have a, a choice, they have to buy it. with the, It comes with the car. Then they'll do yeah. it. And they'll yeah. like, yeah, okay, fine. They'll be, they'll be the last <laughs> autonomous vehicles. Yeah, it will be U-Hauls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just janky old 40-year-old U-Hauls rolling around, trying not to get hit by autonomous <laughs> vehicles. All right. On that note, I would like to sincerely thank Jamie Kitman for joining us this evening. This has been a great conversation. Um, thanks so much for, for being hey, here. Thanks, you guys. Thanks. Bye. All Bye. right. Bye. And we'll, we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>